Anybody here ever heard of Yogi Berra? Some of you baseball guys? And some gals, baseball gals. Well, Yogi Berra, years ago, was the star catcher and hitter for the New York Yankees. And one day he moseyed on into a pizza parlor in a Brooklyn restaurant in New York, and he ordered an anchovy pizza. You know what that is? Some of you people actually like that. Anchovies, you know, they're these little sardine-type things. So he ordered an anchovy pizza, like a little fishy pizza thing. When the pizza was brought to his table, the waiter asked, Mr. Barrow, would you like your pizza cut into four or eight pieces? Better make it four, Barrow replied. I don't think I can eat eight. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the passage in front of us. You see, in John chapter 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, we have the story of a little boy here, a little Jewish boy, who offers to Jesus his anchovy pizza. It's actually closer to that than you would think. I've always pictured these big loaves of bread, big barley loaves, and these big fish. So that here's a boy with a big giant suitcase type of fare filled with all this stuff. Maybe even a cart wheeling it along with a bell, you know. And a little uniform. But in reality, these loaves that we're going to read about in this account were really more like glorified crackers than anything else. They were little. They were fairly thin. And so by having five of them, he's not carrying an armload of loaves. He's got these little biscuit-type things that are like glorified crackers, just a little more, you know, substance to them than crackers. The two fish, you might have uh, any type of fish in your mind, but effectively what he had was like a couple of sardines. Anybody here know what sardines are? I'm not so sure. Do any of you guys eat sardines? Any of you ladies eat sardines? I think we've kind of hit a generation, you know, where it was more like a World War II and just after that syndrome. I remember my dad. It's one of the reasons I don't eat them. I remember my dad, you know, cranking that little metal key around the sardine can and sitting there watching him until he pulled the lid off and then, you know, that smell wafted across the room. And he's sitting there with his crackers and just, oh, this is wonderful, you know, and dipping his crackers in and holding the little fishies up and, whoop, you know, dropping it in. Ah, this is good. Would you like to try some? You know, I'm running for my life. <laughs> but you see, effectively, that's what we've got here. We have a, a couple of sardines. You see, they're well known in that part of the world for their ability to take these little tiny fish and pickle them put a little relish on them, put them onto the little biscuit, and at that point, you're pretty close to an anchovy pizza. So here this young Jewish boy arrives, and he's got the, his anchovy pizza effectively. And as the story unfolds, we see Jesus break the bread and the fish, not into four pieces, not into eight pieces, but literally into thousands and thousands of pieces, enough to feed this entire multitude on this hillside. And what it all becomes to us as we study it is a great lesson. And the lesson is this, how our God can do so much with so little. That's the lesson. Let's read through the passage, shall we? We read in John 6, 1, 
After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, probably known by that name at the writing of John. And then a great multitude followed him because he saw, they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. So now we know why they're following him. They're coming after him because of the signs. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said, Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he did to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, and he said, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that everyone may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, literally a very small lad and a very small lunch. And so he says, But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place because being around Passover time, it would be springtime. And at that point, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're on a hill that slopes right down to the lake. It's just beautiful in the springtime with lots of grass and beautiful wildflowers. So it's a very beautiful time of year and a very beautiful setting. So he has them sit down on the grass for there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. The men being about 5,000, the number of them you have to realize there would have been their wives with them, many of them. And in those days they thought it was a wonderful sign of God's blessing to have a lot of children. So if you add the wives and the single people and then the children of the husbands and wives, you're, you're moving up toward 25,000, 30,000 people. So this is a big crowd on this hillside. So he says, make the people sit down. Mark records that he said, make them sit down in companies of hundreds and fifties, very orderly, so there would be aisles for the guys to move up and down. And the people would be able to fellowship together by being in these small groups. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. This is the one Moses foretold, the Messiah. Now, basically, there, there are many, many things here. I want to focus on three things that I see going on in this passage. First of all, it's very obvious there was a needed rest. There was a needed rest on the part of Jesus and his disciples. Secondly, there was an important test. There was an important test. Third, and it was a test of faith. Third, there was an offering blessed, obviously, by Jesus. So there was a needed rest, there was an important test, and there was an offering blessed. I want to talk, first of all, about the needed rest. Jesus had made plans to get away with his disciples. We read after these things which would cover perhaps 
a long period of time since chapter 5 and the things recorded there. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, and which is the Sea of Tiberias, and this big multitude follows him. We read in verse 3, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there sat with his disciples. Passover was near, so there were many, many people moving through, going up to Jerusalem to attend the Passover. That could account in some way for the large crowd that was there. But the idea is that he wanted to get away and he wanted to rest. He wanted to be away and alone, effectively. This was something that he did on a regular basis. I think it's important to realize that in the life of Jesus, because... As you move through the Gospels and you watch his life and you see how busy he is, he seems to be always, 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 always going. And in a large sense, he is. But there are times that he does stop to rest on a regular basis. For example, in Matthew's account of this same incident and miracle, Matthew records, when Jesus heard it, that would be the death of John the Baptist, in Matthew fourteen thirteen, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. When Jesus heard it, he got into a boat and he went across the lake. He really wasn't going very far, but the idea was he wanted to get away from the multitudes. In fact, we know they ran around the lake Actually, they ran around the lake on foot. So it wasn't that far. And the idea was that he wanted to get away. He wanted to get away because John had been executed. He wanted to get away because he wanted to sit down, I'm sure, with his disciples and really explain to them in a quiet place everything that John the Baptist meant, what he was all about, what his preaching was all about. He also was under great pressure by Herod, who had not hesitated to kill John the Baptist. Why would he hesitate to kill Jesus? Not that Jesus was afraid that Herod would kill him at this time, but that he didn't want to place himself under unnecessary persecution from Herod because it would only abort the plan that he had and that he needed to keep to, you understand. So he wanted to get away from Herod at that point as well. Not to mention the fact that teaching the multitudes healing, listening to their problems day in and day out was a tremendous physical drain on him. If you add to that the teaching of a handful of disciples that we now know to be tremendously slow learners, that only increased the drain on top of everything else. So he needed to get away and he needed to rest. It's interesting to me, could you turn to Luke 5.15? Just hold your place there in John. Turn to Luke 5.15. I remember reading this about four years ago, and it really hit me in a way I had never seen it in all the years of reading it previous. We read in Luke 5.15, However, concerning Jesus, the report went around concerning him, notice, all the more. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed. They wanted to hear teaching. They wanted to have healing by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness, NIV says a solitary place, and prayed. 
Here is an interesting thing, and I think it's critical for all of us. That if we want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ the way He lived, the way His disciples lived and served Him, that it says, as the report went around concerning Him all the more, as His ministry began to pick up momentum, as word began to go out about what He was doing, as more people started to come and attend to what God was doing in their midst, it says that He often then began to withdraw, to be alone, and notice why, to pray. So what we realize here is something extremely critical, and that is this, that in the busyness of our life, and especially as you serve the Lord, if you want to serve the Lord the way the disciples did, and God ends up using you, on top of all your work and freeway travel, commuting, raising kids, I mean everything, there must be a time planned to get away and be alone and pray to seek the Lord, to be refreshed by Him. And there must be time, the same with your family, to get away with them, to be with them. There has to be that time alone. Jesus did it on a regular basis. And it's something we need to do on a regular basis. It has been said, I think all good farmers know this, that a field that has rested will give a bountiful crop. You just keep planting and planting and planting and planting and don't rest the field and don't replenish what's been taken out of it and pretty soon it starts yielding weaker and weaker and weaker crops. And so it is with our lives. There needs to be a rest that there might be a bountiful crop. And I think, you know, we need to, we need to realize that as the years are going by and time tends to go faster as more of it goes by, right? As the years are going by, we need to pace ourselves. And frankly, this is something I have not thought a lot about until recent years. We need to pace ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to become counterproductive. See, none of us has an endless reserve of energy. And again, especially as the years go by, when you're young, you can burn the candle at both ends and sort of get away with it. But the older you get, it takes its toll on you. We have to take care of ourselves so that, you know, as people will, will often say goodbye to you or something, they'll go, take care of yourself. And it's like, how you doing? It's almost like cliche, like it doesn't mean anything until you start getting a little older. Then they say, take care of yourself. And you're thinking, yeah, yeah. I must look pretty bad, huh? <laughs> or they say, take it easy. And yeah, you know, maybe I... Don't work too hard. I used to think, you lazy bum. Is that your saying in life, don't work too hard? Now I'm thinking, hmm, you know, yeah. Take care of yourself. Don't work too hard. It's especially difficult when you love what you do. I know in my life, I just love what I do. To me, it is a joy. Serving the Lord is a joy. Being used of God is a joy. Jesus said, my yoke is what? Easy. And my burden is light so that as you do it right you do it his way his burden is light it's a thrill so I have to watch it we need to pace ourselves you ever heard of the Salvation Army Salvation Army was founded by a good godly Christian man years and years ago named William Booth and he used to travel around a lot and preach and God really used him and one time he was on an extensive trip and he got a letter from his wife and this is what she wrote 
She said, Your Tuesday notes arrived safe, and I was rejoiced to hear of the continued prosperity of the work, though I was sorry that you were so worn out. I fear the effect of all this excitement and exertion upon your health, and though I would not hinder your usefulness, I would caution you against an injudicious prodigality of your strength. In other words, I'd caution you to don't recklessly use your strength. And then she said this, Remember, this is so good, she said, Remember a long life of steady, consistent, holy labor will produce twice as much fruit as one shortened by and destroyed by spasmodic and extravagant exertions of your energy. Be careful, she said, and sparing of your strength, especially in those times when exertion is unnecessary. We have to pace ourselves. Why was Jesus so productive? How could he do what he did? Because he paced himself. How could the disciples do what they did after he was gone? Because they learned from him to pace themselves. It's very critical that we do the same. And in the middle of it, we need to seek God for a balance. You know, we tend as human beings to swing on pendulums, right? Oh, rest, that's what I need. Take it easy. You're right, Pastor. You got it. Don't work too hard. I'm going to put that into effect tomorrow as soon as I get on my job. You know, we tend to swing on pendulums. I believe that rest and motion, both of them, rest versus motion, unrelieved and unchecked, are both equally destructive. Too much endless motion can be destructive to you. Too much rest can be destructive to you. The Bible warns of being lazy and it exhorts to be diligent. So there has to be a balance. And you know the wonderful thing is that here's John writing about this. Matthew records it. Luke records it. John records it. All four Gospels record this incident of the feeding of the 5,000 and the fact that Jesus went to get rest. And it's tremendous to read about John in his later life and how he did get the point and he did get the lesson. According to tradition, when the Apostle John was in Ephesus, his hobby was raising pigeons. Well, on one occasion, one of the elders from the Ephesian church came walking by. He had been out hunting and he had his bow and his arrow with him. And he came walking by and here's John. And what is this great man of God doing on this day? He's sort of hopping around in his, in his building there with his pigeons and he's just playing with them. So here the guy comes along and he sees John playing with one of the birds and he gently chided the old bishop for spending his time so frivolously. Like, is this all you have to do? Don't you have anything better to do with all the wisdom and knowledge that God gave you and giftedness than to stand around here and play with these birds? So he kind of chided him. So this is the reply he got. John looked at the critic's bow. He was carrying his bow and arrow with him, and he looked at the critic's bow, and he remarked that the string had been unloosened. You know, when you're using your bow, you, you pull it down, and you hold the string taut, and you hook it on the top, and so that bow is tense. That's what gives the driving force. But every good archer knows that when you're done using that bow, you must unstring it to release the tension for the sake of the bow. So it's ready and full of spring and life when you go to use it again. So he looked at the critic's bow and he remarked that the string was loosened. Yes, said the huntsman. I also loosened the string of my bow 
when it's not in use. And if it's always tight, it would lose its rebounding quality and fail me the next time in the hunt. And I, said John, am now relaxing the bow of my mind so that I may be better able to shoot the arrows of divine truth when I go from here to engage in my master's service again. You see, we all need time to play. We need to work hard, and I think we need to play hard as well. Jesus made plans to get away and to rest and to attend upon the Father with the disciples. Now, here's an interesting thing. Not only did he make plans to get away and rest, but Jesus also left room for his plans to be interrupted. You see, it says here, John 6, 2, Then a great multitude followed him. They followed him. Mark fills in the gaps with his account. Let me read it to you. In Mark 6.31, it says, Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, that's how busy they were, Jesus and the disciples, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And in Mark 6.32, So when they went away by themselves into a, a boat to a solitary place, but then many who saw them leaving recognized them. It's the problem of notoriety. People recognize you everywhere you go, and it adds to the stress. If you're one of these people that's been just dying to be famous, you ought to just enjoy the fact that you're not, so that you can walk through a mall and people won't stop you every ten feet, and that the ones that used to be around you and labor with you don't run when they see you coming. You know, they're coming down the mall and they whoop, into a shop they had no intention of going into. And you just la la la, drink your coffee and stop and fellowship with those who currently like you and watch those run from you that currently don't. You see, you always have that when people know who you are. So if you've longed for the limelight, you ought to enjoy right where you're at if you're not in it. So here's Jesus recognized by them. He can't even get in a boat and go, oh, there he is. And so they start running around the lake. Now, the lame ones, the sick ones, would have taken much longer to get there, but the healthy ones actually got there, Mark says, ahead of them. So here they are. They're just relaxing now in the sun, the quietness of the breeze across the lake. They're moving slowly across, and probably one of the guys in the back, Andrew, is saying, you know, the first thing I'm going to do when we get over there, I'm going to take a long nap. I'm going to stretch out in the sun on the grass. I think I'll take about a three-hour nap. And Peter's going, yeah, you would do that. I'm going to pray. You know, so they're all thinking of what they're going to do when they get there. But the problem is when they got there, there were already a multitude waiting for them. So here's this great interruption in their plan. You know what blesses me in this passage? That Jesus Christ's compassionate heart left him open to interruptions like this. Oh yes, he, he knew he needed rest. But as he looked at these people, Matthew records in chapter 14, verse 14, it says, When Jesus went out and saw this great multitude... He was moved with compassion, and he healed their sick. So here they are. They're going to have their rest, and yet there's an interruption. And rather than Jesus saying, come on, guys, can you run? Let's get over the other side of the mountain. We need to rest. Instead, he looks at the multitude, and his heart begins to break, and it's full of compassion. He sees their needs. This is the God we know and love. 
He loves us. He's sensitive to our needs as he looks among us, never too busy to stop and minister. And so here with an open, compassionate heart, he stops, he turns aside from their rest. We'll get some rest later, guys. Right now, we've got a big crowd of people with a big need. And so they go to minister to them. Do you realize that one of the reasons for the incarnation of Jesus Christ was to get in touch with the human condition? So that as he went to the cross and rose again and lives forever as a man, a glorified man, that he is able to more fully minister to you and I because he's in touch with our need. He looks at our need and it isn't always just spiritual. It's the entire human condition. And so he manifests that compassion to them. You know, it's amazing. You think about how Jesus manifested his deity. And we've spoken at length at that. You you look at how he moved among the people manifesting the fact he was their Messiah. He could have chosen any way to manifest his power. He could have come out, you know, in a Superman-style outfit and said, I'm here, the Messiah, and this is the way I'll prove it. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. Oh, wrong history time, Uh, wrong audience. He could have come out, you know, and literally done feats of great strength, done all kinds of... Want to see a mountain move? Watch this, move a mountain. Instead, what he did is he went around healing people. He went around meeting need. He went around delivering people from the bondage of Satan. This is how he chose to manifest his power in a way and a direction that would help those that he had come to save. And then as he discipled these guys and he sent them out, remember he sent out 70, remember that? And the Bible says he gave them power. And we're told that they went out and what they did is they healed the sick. He said, go and heal the sick. So many of different things they could have done. So here's this compassionate Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He's on the hillside. He needs rest. He's, he hasn't even been able to eat himself. And suddenly he stops. There isn't going to be any rest. And all through the day, because this is early, all through the day until we read another gospel, it was late. All through the day, he and his devoted followers are ministering to this multitude. So Jesus Christ and his disciples allow their much-needed rest to be interrupted by an outflow of God's compassion on this needy multitude. And I encourage you to be open in the same way. Be open in the same way. Make your plans. Take your rest. But be open to the leading of the Spirit of God. So there was a needed rest. Secondly, here there was an important test. And John is clear to show us that. Look at John 6, 5 says, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, now they've gotten there, the multitude got there ahead of them. He's surveying the situation and he turns to Philip right out in the beginning. And he says, where should we buy bread that these may eat? And what he's doing is he's setting up the test. In fact, in verse 6, John records, this he said to what? Test him. It was a test. For he himself knew exactly what he was going to do. Don't forget that. Jesus always knows exactly what he's going to do. But he loves to test us, to draw us out, to see what we've been learning, to show to ourselves what we've been learning. And so you see the test begins. Now it's amazing when you think of the disciples' readiness for the test. Here are these guys for about two years. 
effectively had endless experiences with Jesus Christ, all that truth, all that teaching from the lips of the Master, they really were ready for this test. And in all reality, God will never give you a test you're not ready for. He won't allow a test your way that you can't handle. And so they're ready for it. Now, given the fact that they're ready for it, it's amazing to see how they handle the situation. So this is a very fair test. You know, he, he had turned the water into wine. That was a creative act, right? They've got this situation now that looks very difficult. He had healed the paralyzed man who had been laying by the pool of Bethesda for years and years and years. That means he had to go in and recreate just about every part of his body effectively to make the man normal. That was a creative act. So far, they haven't seen anything he can't handle. Now, test begins. Where are we going to get enough bread to feed these guys? So he had adequately prepared them for this test, and he gave them an adequate amount of time for the test. He didn't say, I want an answer right now. He effectively said, you think about that, I've got a few healings to do. And down the hill he went. I have a few messages to preach. So what they did, they got together, and they talked among themselves. Another gospel records that. So all through the day, they're out there, they're healing people, they're meeting people's needs, and they're going, have you got an answer yet? No, not me. What about you? No, not me. I don't know what we're going to do. Anyway, the Lord's calling. We better get over there. You know, and so they're moving through the day until the end of the day. They had all day to think about this. Now, let me say this. God has prepared you. God is going to test you. And God wants to use what we're learning right here to affect the way you respond in faith in the next test he sends your way. He will. So their readiness. Let's look at their reaction. How'd they do? Well, despite two years of walking with Jesus, all the truth, all the power manifested, they were too spiritually dull to see the obvious. Philip was tested. What do you think Philip got on his test? An F. Philip flunked the test. Jesus handed out a report card and he said, Here, F. Here's what happened. Philip answered him, verse 7, and he said, 200 denarii, I think the NIV says eight months wages or something like that. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Look, if we took a, a, worked a whole year and took the money, we couldn't buy bread to feed these people. In other words, I've calculated, I've worked it all out, even did the 200 denarii figure, and, you know, that'd be hopeless still. In other words, Jesus, here's my answer. There's no way out of this problem. There's no solution to this problem. Now, you wonder, why did he ask Philip? One guy said, because he was the sharpest. He moved so fast. I have a problem with that. You know, by the end of the whole thing, who is it that says, as they're there with Jesus, at the end of the whole thing of living their life with him, who says, Lord, we're ready now. Just show us. He thinks he's getting all heavy. Just show us the Father. And Jesus turns to him and is like, Oh, you know, I'm glad I'm going to be ascended soon. I don't know how much more of this I can take. Just show us the Father. We want to see God. We've been waiting. And he says, Oh, Philip, have you been with me all this time? And you haven't seen the Father in me. Don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father in you? So the fact that he asked Philip, I think, is pretty critical. I think he's wanting to help him along. I think he knows he's one of the slower guys in the crowd. He tends to be analytical. 
There may have been a sense in which Philip was actually super intelligent. You know the type. They're, they're working life out with a calculator. Everywhere you go, you're on a vacation with them, and there they are. They're calculating it out. See, we're going 25 miles an hour, and we can see how many gallons of gas. And you're just enjoying the scenery, and they're over there. See, it's going to cost... Do you know how much it's going to cost, of course, to go from here to there in the next two hours? Not that I care, but what? You know? There are all those people working their life out with a calculator. We believe the Lord is leading us to do thus and so. Oh, let me calculate that out and see if He's really in it. We don't figure out God's plan by a calculator, but I think that was Philip's problem. I think he was super intelligent. I think he could figure things out. And I think that the problem with Philip is because leaning on a super intelligence, what happens with super intelligent people, and I wouldn't know, is that, <laughs> is that you tend to try to think everything through instead of coming to the Lord and praying and, and letting God show you. If you're one of those people then you need to be careful lest you become, in the end, a slow learner in the kingdom in spiritual things. So I think he's wanting to help Philip out of a heart of love for his disciple here. He says, there's no way out. I look at this and I'm not too quick to judge him. God forgive us for the Philip and all of us. We've learned so much. We come to the situation. You would expect that Philip would say, Lord, I don't need all day for this test. Look, why don't you just say something? Let's do something like this. You get on the highest part of the mountain. Go on the biggest rock. We'll quiet everybody down. You want them in groups? We'll put them in groups. And then you just say one word with an exclamation point. Food! And it'll just happen. Make it land in their laps. It'll be really cool. <laughs> but instead, he comes around after all day. There's no way out of this. That's for sure. And how many times has that happened to you? The truth were known more times than you'd like to admit, and myself also. No way out of this. That's for sure. You know what I think was the problem? I think that he probably remembered the water turned into wine. I think he probably remembered the paralyzed man. But as he looked around that hillside, I think the massiveness of the whole incident absolutely unnerved him. I think it overwhelmed him. I think it caught him off guard. Lord, a little wedding and a little house and a few barrels of water. I can understand that. One paralyzed man. I can understand that too. But Lord, 30,000 people. Nothing here. No way out. No resources. No, I, I don't think so. It's just even for you, Lord. It's just uh, too much. And we've done that, haven't we? Lord, as I look around, I see there's no way out. Now, Lord, I know that you saved me. I know, Lord, you delivered me. I know I was strung out on cocaine. You delivered me instantly. I understand all that, Lord. But this is a big thing. No way out. Oh, okay. So Philip gets an F. Andrew, what do you think Andrew got on the test? I think Andrew, what do you think he got? I think he got a D. I'll show you why. At first I thought it was a C, but I bumped it down. I slashed it and redid it. I found some other errors in the test I hadn't seen. Andrew, I think, got a D. It says in verse 8, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, They've thought about this all day. I've looked everywhere. I try to find out what we've got here in terms of resources. Lord, there's a lad here. He's got this little lad with him, a boy. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. You say, See, that's at least a C. But look at what he says next. There's a lad here with two small fish. 
that? What is that among so many? Lord, this is hopeless. All we have here is a boy with a boy's lunch and chovy pizza thing, Lord, already. You know, so here he is. D. This is no more than a D. We're gracious at that. So, one guy gets an F. Andrew gets a D. In fact, none of them did well. In Mark 6.35, it says, When the day was now spent, Mark fills in the gap. When the day was now spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. The hour is already late. So they come now as a group. What's your solution, guys? You've thought about it all day. Mark 6.36, I'll read it to you. They said, Lord, send them away. <laughs> Man, that'll clean it up quick. Let's get out of here. Maybe we can take that boy's lunch and at least he'll... Maybe he'll drift and we'll eat his lunch. We'll be all right. We'll make it. Campfire, a little boy's lunch. We'll be all right. A happy meal? Make us happy guys, you know? Get them out of here, Lord. Send them away. There's no chance. It's hopeless. They all flunked except Andrew who got a D. So they did terrible in the test. And yet they knew so much. They had seen so much. And I think often we're like that. But I think one of the reasons this account is here to speak to us in such a way that we'll make a real effort to see what God can do. So there was a needed rest and there was an important test. Let's go to the third main thought. There was an offering blessed. I just love that picture. The boy, the loaves, those little biscuits, the few sardine things. And he's coming to Jesus and he probably very nervous after all he's just a kid you know and he gives it to him as an offering and Jesus blesses it now the interesting thing here this is really wonderful how this happened how did there come even to be an offering to be blessed you see in John 6 9 this statement really arrested me there is a lad here there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. Do you realize that God provides through his providence? Do you understand that we don't know anything about this boy? We don't know who his parents are. We don't even know what his name is. We don't know if he was some peddler. Those of you that have been over there to Israel, you know that you see these kids, you walk around, and in certain places where people go, there's these kids, and they're running around with a handful of anything and trying to sell it for anything. It's their little peddlers just wanting to make a little money. We don't know if he was out there and he'd come with a, a bag full of loaves and, a, and some of these little pickled fish and just wanted to make a little money, and maybe all he had left now was five and two. We don't know. We don't know anything about this boy. Nothing. So here he comes. There's a lad here. Now, what we do know is this. Now, nothing of his background or where he came from. What we do know is this. He was the right boy. He was in the right place at the right time. And he had the right thing with him, which was five loaves and two fish. And how did he get there? in the right place at the right time, on the right day, by the providence of God. You see, it was God who had that boy there. There's a boy here because of God. You see, it's so important that we have faith in God's providence. God wants to work in your life and He wants to provide so that His providence is always at work in your life. 
What that is is God working through the natural in a supernatural way. That's what providence is all about. God is always working by His providence in your life to arrange the resources needed to accomplish His will for your life at that time. Pastor Chuck Smith has all these sayings he's famous for. One of the most famous is where God guides, God provides. So here they all are on this hillside with Christ. It's no accident. Where he is guided, he provides. And so they read, we read there's a lad here. And as I look at this, I think of what's in Psalm 107, verse 43, where it says, it's just a statement that comes into my mind. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Don't miss this. There is a lad here because of the providence of God. And he has the provision with him because of the providence of God. God always provides through his providence. Another thing is that God will always find men when he wants them. That's so good. Do you realize he found this boy and he will find those needed for specific ministries in the church. Here's a boy. Here's 30,000 people. How did they find him? There's a lad here. How did you find him among 30,000 people? Because God found him so that he would be there at the right time. And God will always find men when he wants them. You think about the condition of the church before Martin Luther became born again and started effectively the Reformation. And you think about that man's life. You think about what God did. God made Martin Luther. You think about the blazing fire that he put in his heart so that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth would speak and could not be stopped. And you understand when God wants to find a man, God finds a man. And he knows how to do it. It was God who brought the boy to the forefront to be noticed. Now whether he used Andrew or whatever, he uses these natural means. God can find the man when he wants him and God brings the individual to the forefront when he wants him noticed. You know what that means to me? Listen to this. What it means is that your current obscurity in the kingdom of God will not hinder God's will for your life and what He wants you to do. It cannot. Your current obscurity will not hinder God's will. If you are fit for your work, God has gifted every one of us. It isn't a matter of if you're gifted, we're all gifted. Severally, He gives us gifts and blends them to uniqueness as He will by the Spirit. If you're fit for your work, walking with God, the giftedness that you have and the calling God has on your life, and He has a calling on every life, if you have that in place, then don't be afraid that your obscurity is going to overthrow God's plan for you. Don't get the idea that that just because people don't know who you are, that what you feel God wants to do through you isn't going to be done. It was God that brought the boy to the front out of a multitude of people, thousands and thousands of people. You see, think about this. If all you have is very little, you look at your life, you look at your giftedness, and all you have, according to your assessment, is very little, like this boy with his loaves and fishes, use it properly. Use it properly. Surrender it to the Lord. Do service to the Lord right where you are, in your obscurity. And in due time, when God wants you, He knows where to find you. 
Do you realize he knows your address? God knows where you live. God knows your phone number. God knows your car phone number. God knows your number at work, your extension number. He knows about your voicemail. If he wants to get a hold of you, he's got your fax number. So he's got several ways he can get a hold of you. If God wants to find you, he will find you. If God wants to bring you to the forefront among his people and his ministry, he will do so. And I hope that you don't want to be in the forefront unless he wants you to. I hope that you're not one of these people trying to thrust yourself forward because what happens when we do that is if God doesn't want us there, he'll just push us right back. We've had people over the years here who come to the church and they have some giftedness, some talent, some ability, whatever. And it seems that certain ones come in the very first day and they hone in, they find out who the decision makers are for their area. And they want to advertise. You don't need to advertise in the kingdom of God. You don't need to advertise your way out of your obscurity. If you think you're gifted and you think you're fit, you can trust in a providential, sovereign God who's able to find you, who's able to bring you forth to the front. And we've had people that have come in and just been relentless in badgering us, frankly, to get their faces in front of all of you. And we've told them, why don't you wait on the Lord? Why don't you sort of take the lower seat, as Jesus said, and let him call you forth when he's ready? No, no, you don't understand. He is. You're just not hearing it. Oh, that's interesting, and neither is anyone else around here. But you're hearing it loud and clear. Yeah, that's right. I hope you're not like that, because what will happen is you'll go through life, and what you'll be is a believer who's not a belonger. Generally, these people come through the door, they corner me or one of the other pastors, and they'll say something like this. Well, you know, we just left so-and-so's church. Now, I know that you know him. I know you may be friends, but I've got to tell you, that guy's got an eye problem. He doesn't know giftedness and blessedness when he sees it. He doesn't know power and authority. He doesn't know talent. In fact, after all this time, we finally had to, well, it's like a divorce, we had to go. And now we're here because we know. We know that you guys hear God. We know that you guys are gifted and blessed and know power and talent and ability when you see it. And you see, I'd like to begin right away. And this is what I'd like to do. I want to get up here on the stage. I want to dance for the people in the spirit. <laughs> and we're thinking, right, right. Anything else? No, but seriously, these people come in and they criticize what's going on. Guy comes in, he's a drummer. Ah, that Ralph, what does he know? You know? <laughs> Worship leader can't get along with anybody. You know, no pastor on earth can get along with this guy. Self-appointed worship leader. What is that little blonde gal up there now? I'm here now. I got to tell you this. One time we had a guy. It was this type of situation. I was early, you know, in the ministry. I was thin. <laughs> I had sort of blondish brown hair. And I was very naive and dumb. And fairly young. And this guy comes. He lays this whole thing on me. He says, I'm gifted. I'm handsome. Look at me. You know, and he said, I've been around, here's where I've been, you know, this resume of where he's been, and an explanation for every difficulty along the way. He says, look, you just, God wants me in charge of the worship here. So I was stupid, young, dumb and thin and all that. So I put him up. I said, all right, we'll give you a chance. You know what he did? I'm not kidding. Good morning. 
Take a good look at this face before we sing. This is exactly what he did. You're going to see a lot of it. And I thought, no, no, they're not. <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, the Lord leads. They didn't. So beware of pushing yourself to the front. If God isn't pulling you to the front, he will push you back. You don't want to be in the front unless God wants you there. When he wants you, he will bring you. All you have to do is be sensitive and take the little that he's given you and just use it and surrender it to him right now. May God grant us all, and I'm talking about all of us, myself included, to work on unobserved, to work on happily before the Lord, to work on faithful no matter what, and just work as unto the Lord. And let God, if he wants us to come to the front, let him do it. To be noticed when the hour suggests the need and the need specifically calls loudly for you. That's the way to let it all happen. So, this offering that was blessed was provided by God. Secondly, it was produced by a boy. It's interesting to me, it was a misjudged boy. Look at John 6, 9. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? we got a boy over here, but he's not a solution to any problem. The boy was misjudged. Here are the people around him, seasoned disciples. And they're around him, and just a boy with a, you know, thing. But he's not a solution to the problem. And he was, in fact, exactly God's solution to the problem. The Lord is still in the business of, of choosing the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And that includes you, and that includes me. We may only have a little... But if we're called and, and it's God's will, He will bring us as the solution. People will misjudge us. That's why we've got to walk before the Lord. You have to know in your own heart that God is moving in you and upon you to a certain end. And the only way you know that is living near to Him. So this offering is produced by a boy who's misjudged. But another thing it is also that he is a very unselfish boy. We don't read here. And they found the boy in his lunch. And Andrew walked over and said, Look out, kid, I'm bigger than you. Give me that thing. And you come with me to Jesus. You're in trouble now. Did you steal this lunch? You don't read anything like that. And the boy screams, Ah, my mom made it for me. Look, there's, you guys are on the side on my lunch pail here. The apostles and everybody. Look on the other side, miracles and great deeds of power of Jesus. Look at my thermos inside. No, you don't, please give me my lunch back. No, the boy just gave his lunch. I love that. He's the only one in the crowd with any food. And he gladly gives it up. You see, he was so unselfish. God loves it when we're unselfish and willing to give, trusting him to see what he might do. I came across this little poem. Listen to it. There is a man, and some did count him mad, the more he gave away, the more he had. You like that poem? There is a man, there was a man, and some did count him mad. The more he gave away, the more he had. And so it is in the Christian life. Don't be unselfish with God. Just open up. Let God have what he has given to you back. So the offering of the loaves and the fishes was provided by God and produced by a boy, and then it was prepared by Jesus. Look at John 6.10. He said, Make the people sit down. Now Jesus takes control of the situation. Make the people sit down, for there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, a number about 5,000. 
plus the women and children, all of that. So he has them sit down. Mark tells us in groups of 50 and hundreds. That means that they would have been in these little sections all around the hillside. There was a lot of grass, so it was very green. Then the aisles in between and the colored oriental clothing. The Bible actually says in one of the Gospels in the Greek, he made them sit down prosei by prosei, garden patch by garden patch. Literally is what it means. And when you bring it over to the English, so what it was is as they sat down, as God looked down, it looked like a lovely garden with all kinds of flowers, the colored clothes, the green grass. It was just a beautiful, colorful, happy situation. Jesus takes control, make them sit down. He does it in order because when God works, He works decently and in order. There's no chaos in this crowd. It's absolute order so that people can have their needs best met. And you know what I found about this? Here's these guys with no solution. No way out of this, Lord. I have found in my life that the solution begins with my obedience. The solution begins with my obedience. In other words, my obedience positions me for the blessing that's going to minister to the situation. Make them sit down. They obey, and then God begins to pour out His blessing. So Jesus, verse 11 took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. So here this offering, this boy with his loaves and his fish, he transfers the offering over to Jesus. Here, a moment ago this was my lunch. These were my loaves and my fish. They no longer belong to me. I transfer them to you. You have full ownership. They are yours. So the offering is transferred over to Jesus. And he takes full possession. They became his property. Let me ask you a searching question. When you tell people, I've given Jesus my life, what does that mean to you? What are you, what are you really saying? I've given Jesus my life. Does that mean, as you search your own heart tonight, does that mean He has full possession of you? Have you transferred your heart? Have you transferred your life? Have you transferred the little giftedness, whatever, the abilities you have? Have you transferred them to Jesus? Are they really His? Is that what it means? You see, this boy transferred what he had to offer over to Jesus, and Jesus had full ownership. Once he had full ownership from a full transfer, he was able to do anything that he wanted to do. But you see, there has to be that full transfer over. He transferred them to Jesus. I read something by an old writer today about this and the blessedness that comes with that full transfer over. Listen. Here's how it goes. How shall we rest in God? The writer says, by giving ourselves wholly to Him. If you give yourself by halves, you cannot find full rest. There will ever be a lurking disquiet in that half that is withheld. Isn't that interesting? There will ever be a lurking disquiet in the half that is withheld. Perhaps you've wondered in your life why you don't have a lot of rest and peace in the Lord. Is it because you've only given half over to the Lord? May it be that you need a full transfer of the offering of your life over to Jesus so that you can have the blessed rest that comes. There's nothing like knowing Lord, this is one day at a time, but here it is. I pick up my cross. I deny myself. I follow after you. Full transfer today. 
take my life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. There was a full transfer. With that transfer, there comes a real tranquility, a real rest. I know I'm not holding it back. Now, God, work. So he transferred the offering to Jesus. And then it was, notice, blessed by Jesus. It says, Jesus took the loaves. He accepted what the boy had to give. You may think, you know, I have nothing to give the Lord. I have so little. I'm, I'm a nothing. I have nothing. I don't think God could ever use me. Listen, if you will give him what you have, he will accept it. He took what the boy had. He accepted it. And then he blessed it. It says, he took the loaves and when he had given thanks. When he had given thanks. Reminds me of the widow. Remember when the widow stood outside the temple? The Pharisees were blowing their horns and their trumpets and then they'd drop a bunch of money in and a big clang and everybody kind of clap. Wow, you're such a giver. And then this little old woman comes up. She has only two mites left. And that is two little copper coins. And she puts them in and Jesus stops everything. Gets all the guys together and he says, you have got to see this. This is giving. And he says, look at this woman. She put in only two pennies, two coins, but that's all that she had. Thus, this woman with nothing, who gave her the little she had, has given more than everyone out here because they're all giving out of their riches. She gave out of her poverty. So what did Jesus do? He was blessing that woman. And he even recorded the incident for all time in the Bible as a blessing, a special blessing to her. He blessed her in front of the disciples. And let me say this. Jesus is still receiving the little that we can bring to him. He is still grateful for it when it comes. He is still thanking the Father for the work in our lives and blessing that offering. So you may come with the little in your life. You may come with timid, trembling hands. Lord, I don't know. I'm such a mess. But I want you. I want to be used. I want to give my life to you. Lord, take it. And he gratefully takes it and he blesses and gives thanks for it. And then he blesses it. So that when it touches his dear hands, when it's blessed by his precious lips, suddenly the little can become very powerful. Very powerful. I pray today that the Lord will bless everything that you have to give. Whether it be your mind, if he's given you a good mind. Whether it be your heart, if he's given you a good heart. Your voice, if, if you have a good voice to sing, that he will bless whatever you have to his glory, to minister to many. That's my prayer for you today. And so whenever he puts his blessing into the little gift and grace that we offer him, a good work begins and it goes on to perfection. So the offering was provided by God. It was produced by a boy and it was blessed by Jesus. And what happened? Well, from there it went on to be presented to a multitude. The impossible occurred. The unthinkable occurred. The undreamable occurred. A boy used to minister to a multitude with this little tiny bit that he had to give. In verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Don't you love that? God is able to do above and beyond. Can't you just imagine people are sitting there. They're all now in their groups. They're excited. They're hungry. They're famished. They haven't eaten all day. You know how you get when you just are late for breakfast. And here they are. There's just, oh, oh, I hope it's a big blessing. I just hope I get a full meal. Oh, shut up. You look like you could miss a few. You know, and you see these people out there. And they're, oh, and yet... All of them, the thousands of them, 
as much as they wanted, both of the loaves and the fish, literally, literally, the Bible says they were glutted. They were glutted. The, the terminology used in the Gospels is that of a horse feeding at the trough and eating till he can't eat anymore. It's a term used of animals when they have literally been, shall I say, foddered up. When they're just so filled they can't eat another bite. So here they are. They go from being famished and wondering and hoping. Oh, listen, if I don't get much, will you give me some of yours? You're not into food anyway. You know, and, and, and all of a sudden there's just so much that you can have all you want until finally they're all laying around. Oh! Wonder Bread! Ooh, I've never been so stuffed and never loved it as much. You know, they're all so happy. They were all filled. That's the way the Lord does it. And then it says in verse 12, So they were all filled, and He said to the disciples, This is so great. Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. One thing's for sure. Jesus didn't want to trash up the hillside. Gather up so nothing remains. First of all, I want this place looking clean when we leave like it was when we came. Secondly, I don't do miracles and do it in a sloppy way that I waste stuff. It isn't like because I'm God, I'll make so much I don't care. You know? Oh, there's a bunch left. I'll just put it somewhere. I don't care. I can make more. No. They gathered up all the remains into how many baskets? Twelve. And how many disciples were there? Twelve. And how many of them did well on the exam? None. Those twelve baskets were literally filled. So you get the picture as the sun goes down over the Sea of Galilee and the multitudes are moseying off happy and content and this little line of twelve guys behind Jesus. Do you get the picture? They're walking along like this with these baskets full of food and, and Andrew says to Philip, don't you ever pull that again, you know? <laughs> you didn't do so well yourself. Yeah, well, this is the last time. Meanwhile, he's chewing on a little piece of fish, you know? They just What happened here? Jesus blessed it all and a great deal of misery was re removed from the lives of those people. Don't you want to be used like that by God? So many lives affected. Jesus received great glory. They said, truly, this is the prophet who was to come. And then a record was made of this in the Bible of the loaves and the fishes. A record of the boy who gave the little he had to Jesus. The record is in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, and it's in John. The only other miracle recorded in all four Gospels, the only other miracle is the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's how significant this whole event and miracle is in the Bible. Why? To make sure that you and I would never forget that our God can do so much with so very little. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for recording this in the Bible. Thank you for that boy. Thank you for that lunch. Thank you, Lord, for the example of these disciples failing this exam. Thank you for putting it all here for us so that we will not fail these tests of faith, but rather we could rest in you. Lord, bless this passage and what we have learned here, these truths and principles, to our minds and to our hearts that 
in the next test that we face, these things would be ringing in our heads and we could come to you expectantly waiting upon you to meet the need of the hour and to do it in such a way that you will receive all the glory. And we do pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.